Pastor Kenny is south this morning. He is uh, visiting with Daniel, his future bride, the uh, future in-laws, and they're doing some pre-wedding planning and some get-to-know-you between the families. They've been looking for a time to do that, so uh, that's where they are this morning, which means you have the privilege of hearing me this morning. At least that's how we'll pretend to look at it, right? But we are going to be talking today about fatherhood and about, uh, as you can see on the board, discipleship. And I call it today Daddy Discipleship uh, because really this message is more than just for the fathers, more than just for the fathers. But I'm curious, I'm not going to make you stand, but by show of hands, if you are or have ever been a father, whether it's biological, adopted, or otherwise, would you, would you raise your hand? Keep it up, keep it up there. If you are in this room today and you have ever uh, reared a child for any reason at all, raise your hand today. That would be several of you ladies in this room, right? You've raised children. Keep the hands up. Um, If you have ever mentored anyone spiritually, would you raise your hand? If it's not already up, keep it up. If they're up, keep them up. Don't put them down. Um, If you are a young person in this room and you hope one day to be a parent, raise your hand. All right, so is that everybody in the room? I've covered all my bases now. All right, if your hand is up, this message is for you today. Um, So you need to make sure you're paying attention as we go through it. But as we look at this idea of daddy discipleship, I want to consider the wise father. We're going to be in the book of Proverbs today. And what I want you to understand, the book of Proverbs was written by a man who was a father, but he also happened to be the wisest man ever. He was raised by a father who was given the title, A Man After God's Own Heart. So he had a good lineage as far as fatherhood is concerned. And in the book of Proverbs, we find him giving counsel to his children. And he speaks to his sons about fatherhood and what it means to be a father and how to be a wise father and how to leave a godly legacy to his children. So we're going to be looking at some of the passages out of the book of Proverbs together today. And I want us to consider a wise father as we go through. We're going to begin... In chapter 20 and verse 7. And this is going to kind of be our home base for this morning. We'll come back to here. We'll reference this passage a number of different times. But read along with me. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 7. It says, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Let's just camp out here and look at this verse for just a little bit because in it we find the definition of a wise father. We also find a benefit to the children of the wise father. But there's something we have to understand, a presupposition that has to be made here, and that's this, with this word righteous. The fact that Solomon uses righteous to describe this father tells us something about this man, this father that he has in mind. This is a God-fearing Christian man. You say, how can you be so sure and how can you be so confident in that? Well, think about this word righteous. It packs a lot of weight when we see it in Scripture. Because the Bible also uses this word to reference our righteousness, and it tells us that our righteousness is like filthy rags. On our own, Left up to our own, left up to our own devices, our own wisdom, our own experiences, our own capabilities. Our best that we can offer is like filthy rags. It it makes me think of the commercial that you see on TV where mom comes home and dad's in the kitchen working. 
And he looks up and he just smiles. He thinks he's doing such a great job. And there's a kid sitting on the counter with no diaper. And he's like scaling a fish next to him, right not on a cutting board, just right on the counter. And he's getting ready to prep dinner. You know, thank goodness for Lysol wipes, right? Or Clorox wipes, whatever the commercial's for. Because they can clean up even the mess that we don't see. Because even whenever he got done scaling the fish, even if he wiped up all the scales, even if he moved the kid off the counter and put him down on the floor, what can't you see on the counter there, right? And see, if we're not careful, we look at ourselves and we look at our righteousness when we look in the mirror and we think, you know what, I'm a pretty good father. I make time for my kids. I'm a pretty good parent. I'm a pretty good mentor. I've got it all together. I could be a great life coach. I'm super organized. I'm at the top of my game. I'm at the top of the pecking order at work. You know, I give to charity. I'm a compassionate person. I help take care of my neighbors, my elderly parents. I'm a good guy. But you see, while our cloth looks nice and clean, what we don't see is that's the cloth that's been used to clean up that countertop. And all of that nastiness that was on the counter that you wouldn't dare want to cook on or prep a meal on is there on your cloth. That's your righteousness. And regardless of how good it looks to you, there are impurities. There is death. There is destruction. There is disease. That's what your righteousness brings and that's what it is. In fact, the description of our righteousness in Scripture is much more disgusting than that. Imagine the vilest, worst mess that you could possibly clean up. And that's what it compares our righteousness to. We just get so used to seeing it. And we get so used to ours looking better than somebody else's. If we're not careful, we think we're righteous. But on our own, our righteousness is filthy rags. And Solomon tells us that to be a wise father, to be a wise disciple maker, to be a wise parent, a wise mentor, first it has to start out with us being righteous. You see, there's only one way we can do that. When we realize our righteousness is like filthy rags, when we realize that we're imperfect, when we realize that our life is full of sin, when we realize that the best that we can do and the best that we can offer still doesn't compare to the perfect standard of God, And we realize that he did something about that that we couldn't do when he sent his perfect son to die in our place. When we bank our life on that, when we put our faith on that, and we give him control of our life, then it says we're wrapped, we're covered in his righteousness. His perfect, holy righteousness. So in order for us to be a wise father, we've we've got to take the first step. We have to be righteous. You cannot be the father to your children. You cannot be the disciple maker to your disciple that God has called you to be if you haven't started here. You can provide for your children. You can provide a nice home. You can get them on the best travel ball team. You can pay for the best equipment. You can make sure they've got the best clothes in the best school and the right group of friends. You can send them off to the right college, get the right career, make all the right connections for them to help them get their foot in the door. But you will never do right by God, by your kids, if you don't start here. You have to be righteous, which means you have to have a personal relationship with God. It's not a family relationship. It's not enough that you bring them to church on Sundays. It's not enough that you make sure that they're in Sunday school. It's not enough that you make sure that they're here on Wednesday night for a WANA or a mega sports camp. 
It's not enough that you get off work early so you can bring them to VBS and make sure they're here every night. Do you have that righteousness that comes through a personal relationship with God the Father? That is where it begins. But then he goes on. Notice this next word, the righteous who walks. This is an interesting word because it paints a picture. This is someone who walks habitually the same path, the same pattern over and over and over again. I saw him again yesterday as I was headed down toward Hurricane. And I know you all are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. A couple of different times a day when you're going down through there, you see him running in one direction or other, but he's there every day. It does not matter the weather, and his attire is always the same. Running shoes, short running shorts, no shirt, and long flowing white hair. You all know who I'm talking about? You've seen him. You know exactly who I'm talking about. The shorts started out as Confederate flag shorts, then they went to American flag shorts, and now they're just plain white running shorts to match his hair. I don't know his name. Someone informed me after the first service about the neighborhood of where he lives. He runs a long way from where I've seen him in Hurricane every day. Every day. Without fail. This is a man who walks habitually in the same path. And if we are going to consider a wise father and what it means for us to raise our children, to mentor our disciples in the way that God intended, we have to understand that it's not enough for us to realize one time that we're unworthy, that our righteousness is filthy rags, and to come to God for his righteousness. It's not enough one time to come to him for salvation and then go on living our lives the way we want to. It's not enough to come to him for fire insurance or for some feel-good moment at an altar on an emotional high. But we have to habitually walk in our integrity the life that he has planned for us. When we come to him in repentance, we're turning from sin. We're not just seeking forgiveness. I'm sorry that I did this. We're turning from it. We're walking habitually in the path that he has for us. So if we're going to be wise fathers, if we're going to make the kind of disciples that God has called us to make, we need to understand that we have to pick up our cross daily and habitually walk the path, the life that he's given us to live with integrity. And as we do that, it says, blessed are his children after him. Blessed are your disciples that you're leaving after you. But that begs the question, why are they blessed? If we will live as wise fathers, if we will be wise about making disciples, why will they be blessed? I think there's two blessings here that we see. The first is this. A wise father sets his children on the right path. He sets them on the right path. Look at Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. I know you've heard that verse a million times. Probably every Father's Day of your life. But I want you to look at these words, train up, and think about it this way. A picture that I've not had of this verse before. So I was going through this and praying about this passage... And God gave me this. 
Here, just a few weeks ago, we had torrential rain here in this area. You might not have been affected where you were, but right here in this immediate area, we got more water than we had ever wanted. Some people here locally had their homes damaged, their property damaged. Some of us were lucky to go home and find that our basements and everything else were dry while neighbors were affected. But I want you to think about that water. When that much came down, people had water pooling in places that they did not want water. There was no plan for water. There was no desire for water. There was no contingency ever to do anything about that water because water had never been standing there before. So what do you do? Do you just let it sit there until it eventually evaporates? It's one possibility. Call ServPro to come in and vacuum it all out, right? You borrow somebody's pump. But what's a good old-fashioned way? If you've got water pooling somewhere on your property where it does not need to be, what's the good old-fashioned way to get it out of there? You dig a trench, right? Now think about it. If you have this pool of water just sitting here, it's not going anywhere. It's found the low spot, and it's just collecting. I don't have to do a whole lot. But if I want the water to go this direction, I can start my trench this way. It doesn't have to be very big, very deep, or very wide. It just has to be a little bit lower than where that water is right now, right? Where's the water going to go? In the direction of the trench. Now, if this water becomes an issue time and time and time again, and water tends to collect in this spot and it gets a lot, eventually that water, as it continues moving that direction, what is it going to do? It's going to deepen that trench and it's going to widen that trench. It may even lengthen that trench. But that water is going to continue to move in the direction of that trench that I started. Until what? Somebody else digs another trench, right? That water doesn't collect in this pool and decide, you know what? I've been going in the direction of this trench now for five years. I'm tired of going that way. I'm going to go this way. It won't do it. Why? Because that's the path that you set the water on. Now, sometimes that water will overflow the banks of the trench. Sometimes it will need a little course correction. Sometimes if there's a lot of water, it'll start to erode away and you'll see it starting to dig its own path headed this way and you want it to come back in line this way a little bit. Takes a little bit of excavating, right? But you can get that water to go that direction. And even when it gets off course, even when it overflows its banks, which general direction is that water headed? In the direction that I trenched. Now think about that in light of this verse. If we will train up our children, if we will lay that groundwork, if we will start them headed in the right direction, over time, that trench will deepen and widen. That relationship with the Father will develop as they spend more and more time headed in that direction. Do our children sometimes get out of line and need course correction? Yes. Sometimes does life get overwhelming and they overflow the banks? Yes. But what direction are they generally headed in? It's that path that we started them on. That groundwork that we laid originally. And that's what he's calling us as parents, as disciple makers. That's what he's calling us to do. As we are given children, as we are given converts, as he brings people into our lives, we are to set them in the right direction. 
and help get that relationship established. How do we do that? This is such an important job that he gives us plenty of direction. He says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you such, or I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Now notice this, verse 10 and 11. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Notice these two words, taught and led. How do we train up a child? How do we get them pointed in the right direction? How do we lay the right groundwork for them? It's in word and deed. We mold and we model. It's the same thing when we're making disciples. We teach them the word. We instill that in them. And then we demonstrate how that word plays out in life by demonstrating it in our lives. It's so important, and God so wanted us not to mess it up, that he didn't just give it to us here. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was the teaching that he was concerned about. This is what he gave Israel. This is set apart and sets out. It's emphasized in this passage where God is communicating. And he says, this is what I want them to know. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then in verse 6, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now notice in verse 7 what he says. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Here's the teaching. Here's the teaching. The word. The molding. But notice it's not just lecture hall style. It does not say every morning when you get up, set your children down for an hour and preach to them out of the word. No, but what does it say? Talk about it when you sit in your house. Talk about it when you walk by the way. Talk about it when you lie down. Talk about it when you get up. Talk about it when you have to discipline them. Talk about it when you're in the drop-off line at school. Talk about it while you're waiting on the coach to get there at practice. Talk about it while you're sitting in the drive-thru at Wendy's. Talk about it when you're out on a walk around your neighborhood. Talk about it whenever you go to tuck them in at night and read that bedtime story. Talk about it when you're on your lunch break at, at work. Talk about it as you're carpooling with them back and forth into the city. Talk about it whenever you're sitting in the bleachers at the ball game. Wherever we find ourselves with our children or our spiritual children, we're to talk about it. We're to make him and we're to make this word and his insight and what he has to say about life relevant to life. By what we talk about. But then notice he goes on and says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you see what he's doing here? I'm not saying you have to walk around with scripture inscribed, that you need to get a tattoo across your forehead. But notice what he's saying. When they see you, the first thing they notice about your life should be what? When they walk into your home, the first thing they should notice about your home is what? 
When they see you with your family, the first thing that they should notice is what? When they're in conversation with you, the first thing they should notice is what? When they do business with you, the first thing they should notice is what? You see, it's putting into practice. Walking in integrity. Habitually. Day in and day out. Doing what it is that we're teaching. Putting the word into practice in our lives and modeling what we're wanting them to become. As you think about that with children and parents in a very literal way, you see that, don't you? Children not only resemble their parents in physical appearance, but in their mannerisms and the way they carry themselves. Have you ever seen someone and you thought, "Mm, could that be? And then you see them walk across the room and it's like, yeah, that has to be. They walk exactly like their father. Or they say something that sounds exactly like their father. Or guys, how many of you all remember the time when you were early in your teenage years and you picked up the phone and answered and it was someone who called for your dad and they just started talking to you because they thought you were him, right? That was almost a source of pride. You know, I have arrived. I sound like a man. Assuming your dad doesn't sound like Mickey Mouse, right? But you've arrived, right? You sound, you look, you resemble your parent in their mannerisms, The way you speak, the way you carry yourself. For some of you all, you dreaded that day, right? There were things that your parents did or things that your parents said or the way they did things. And you said, I am never going to do that. When I have children of my own, I will never, whatever it is, until you have a child who's exactly like you. And then you open your mouth as a parent and what happens? Your parent comes out, right? You don't know why. You don't know where. You didn't plan on it. You fought against it. But it happens. Why? Because your parent walked habitually, with integrity, good or bad. They modeled that in front of you for years. And you absorbed it. You absorbed it. And as disciple makers, as parents, we know that that's true. So what do we model? What are we putting out there for them to absorb? And why aren't we more intentional with the way that we do it? Why did God feel this was so important? The people that he was speaking to here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 were those people who had come out of Egypt. They're now in the promised land, but they're wandering. They've been wandering. He's not so much concerned about them as the generation they're raising because where is that generation that they're raising going to go? They are going into the promised land. They are going to inherit the land that God had promised to Abraham where they weren't going to have to work for anything. He was literally serving everything up on them ready to go. Cities with homes, farms already plowed and planted, fruit already on the vine. He was delivering it completely to them the way that it needed to be for them to pick it up and just continue on with life. But he warned the parents to teach, to model, to exemplify, to pass on this very important truth. Why? Look at verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. If you don't pass this on to your children, if you don't get them rooted in this truth, then when they get into the land that I promised them, 
they're going to forget who brought them there. If we don't instill in our disciples, if we don't ingrain into our children this truth, then when they leave us and head into the land that God has promised them, they're going to forget who brought them there. When they go off to school, when they start that new family, when they start that new career, when they move to the next state, when they're raising their own children, they'll forget who brought them there. When that disciple transfers their job and you don't get to meet together at lunchtime anymore. When, when that neighbor's husband gets a transfer and you don't get to have your morning coffee together after the kids are away at school. They'll forget who brought him there. We've got to teach it. We've got to model it. Teaching fail number one, though. Look at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice the last three words there. Of the Lord. I can teach you a whole lot of things. But if I'm teaching out of what I think, what I've experienced, what I think I know to be true, I'm failing you. It doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what I've experienced. It doesn't matter how I would do things, especially if it's contrary to the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's what we have to bring them up in. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. Are you bringing them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? Teaching fail number two. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. Notice the contrast here between integrity and crooked. Crooked does not mean you're a shyster. Crooked does not mean you're a little snake in the grass. Crooked does not mean you're a weasel. You may very well be all of those things. But what crooked is referring to here is someone who does not walk with integrity. Someone who can talk a good game. Someone who knows all the right things to say, but someone who has not put it into practice. Someone who is teaching in word, but not in deed. You're not doing your child. You're not doing your disciple any favors. And notice what it says. You will be found out. You say, well, why would God do that? If I'm discipling somebody, if they're growing, even if my life is messed up and I'm not really doing what I'm teaching them to do, as long as they're doing it, why would God care? Why would God let them find out? Or why would God expose what I've got going on? Why would that happen? Wouldn't that just tear down their faith and destroy their walk and destroy their relationship with God? Number one, do you think that they really don't know that there's something disingenuous about you already? You might think you have everyone fooled and they might not know all the particulars and they might not have all the details and they might not know exactly what it is, but there is something about you that doesn't ring true. And you're letting it show in little moments and little things that are out of character that maybe really aren't out of character as much as they are exactly your character. And number two, God will reveal them and will deal with them in your life because if they know about them and they see that God hasn't done anything, what example does that set? And yet what does it teach them if God deals with it in your life? 
they learn that they don't want God to have to deal with it in theirs. And so they're not going to fall into the same trap and make the same mistakes. Make sure that you're walking habitually, but you're walking in integrity. What you're teaching them, what you know to teach them, what you know that you ought to be doing, what you know should be true in your life, is true in your life. But there's a second blessing. The children of the wise father have a fortress. He's established a fortress for them. Look in Proverbs 14, 26. It says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Now understand, this word fortress and refuge probably doesn't mean quite as much to us as it meant in this day. We, we live in a world where permanence is not an issue. We live in houses of brick and mortar with concrete slabs. Home is home. But think, as Solomon is writing, yes, he has a palace. But the average person in his kingdom is not living in a secure, permanent dwelling. Many of them spend large parts of the year either in the open or in tents with their herds and with their flocks. This idea of having a refuge or a fortress is this idea of having somewhere permanent. Then when life becomes overwhelming, when the circumstances dictate, when the enemy comes, when the wolves come to ravage, there is somewhere that they can go for safety and shelter and protection. And the wise father, the righteous one who walks habitually in integrity, establishes a fortress because he shows them, he embodies in his life this idea that in the fear of the Lord, we have a refuge. We can be confident. It does not matter the assault that the enemy mounts on our lives. It does not matter the circumstances that this world throws at us. They see our unwavering, unshakable faith in God our Father. And they know that regardless of what's going on, I'm not going to worry and I'm not going to fret and I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to go to God so they can have the same confidence. Because they're running to the same shelter, the same refuge that I'm running to. You see, this refuge, this fortress is more than just a place of safety and security and protection. It's also a place of permanence and home. Regardless of where they may roam in their lives, regardless of where they may get taken off to or led astray to, regardless of where they might find themselves as they're trying to find themselves, they know that their father their mentor served a God who never changes. Whose fortress sets high above anything that this world can offer. Who no matter where they find themselves and how far away from sinner they've gotten, they can always look to that fortress as a place of home, of permanence. And they know they can always come back and get back to it. And when they're there, they'll be welcomed. They'll be forgiven. They'll be safe. 
They'll be mended. They'll be re-equipped. They'll be redeployed. They'll be protected. The Father who walks in integrity, who isn't shaken by what the world throws at him. That disciple maker who doesn't go to their disciple and say, I'm just worried to death. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how we're going to get through this. I don't know if I'm ever going to. But that disciple maker who goes to the disciple and says, hey, pray with me about this situation. I don't know how God's going to work it out yet, but I know he's going to. But pray that I just I have the patience to get through it. Pray that somehow on the other end, I don't know what God's going to do, but he's just going to show how amazing he is even through this rough thing in my life. That father, that disciple maker, who walks in integrity that way, establishes that fortress. He puts that in that life, that generation to come, as a place that they can always go back to, as a marker, as a standard, as something that they can see, a beacon when life is dark. So when I ask this question again, as we conclude today, why are they blessed? You're a father, a mother, a spiritual parent, a mentor, a disciple maker. Ask yourself this question about the people that God has placed in your life, your children, your disciples. When we look at your life and we ask this question, why are they blessed? Because you're their father. Because you're their their discipler. What would the answer be? Are you leaving behind the kind of legacy that Solomon wrote about here? Are you a righteous person? Have you accepted the forgiveness that only God can provide? Are you walking in integrity, the life that he created you to live? Walking by the standards that he gave and the directions that he gives? Is there somebody out there who's needing a mentor? A spiritual child who's been neglected? Because you're not doing their job. Are they there for you to take under wing and to lead and to guide and direct? And just waiting for you to step up to this job. I asked this question in the early service. I ask it again today. Just like in Deuteronomy 6, we've been tasked We've been tasked to teach this next generation. Whether they're our children or our spiritual children. Regardless of age. We've been tasked. In 10, 20 years. When someone looks at the church. And they see how much that generation resembles in their mannerisms. This generation. When they see how much the son resembles the father in the way he speaks and carries himself. What church will they see? 
How are we doing in being a blessing to our children? Let's pray together today.